and welcome to another edition of Plain Talking. This time round, we're going to hear from a couple who are pioneering a social justice and hope-based Christian project in the northeast of England. Jim Ray will offer an Advent meditation on being lost for words. But first, we're going to catch up on all that happened in COP26. This gathering of world governments, environmental groups, NGOs, faith movements and many others met a few weeks ago in Glasgow. In the build-up to COP26 and during the gathering, we learnt of the desperate need to cap global warming at a maximum temperature of 1.5 centigrade. With the absence of China's President Xi and other world leaders, hopes were not high of such a deal. So I asked Paul Boddenham, a trustee with Green Christian, a leading Christian environmental group, for his assessment of COP26. And I began with asking him about the importance of the 1.5 centigrade aspiration. If, if this 1.5 is, uh, is breached, you know, if we don't get close to it, and some, you know, some plenty of scientists have said we've already reached that, that tipping point, that, that we've already mm-hmm. went beyond the point of no return. I mean, well, uh, hopefully we'll maybe we'll come on to some more hopeful scenarios if we get it right. But what what's what's the bleakest scenario of all? If if we carry on as we are, and the richer nations and the more and the big developing ones don't change habits, what could the destiny of this earth be? Well, it, it's a really important question, and I think we are being dishonest if we don't face that question and I think a lot of people are they're thinking it and they don't want to go there (laughs) so good for you (laughs) Gavin because unless we really do think about those questions we're not going to respond commensurately we're not going to get just how much we've got to do you know we're not going to understand what the risks are so what what are the risks of um, it said it's been sort of calculated that it we might hit 1.8 if everybody does everything that they say they're going to do as a result of Glasgow. Um, I think that's probably optimistic. The, the, the least uh, good scenario is 2.7 degrees of warming. Uh, so it'll be somewhere in between those two. Christ, I think it was Christiane Figueres, who used to be the general secretary of this whole process, who said the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is hundreds of millions of lives. And, you know, it's, it's that sort of blunt, really. Now, those hundreds of millions of lives won't be in countries like Britain. They will be in countries that are sort of vulnerable to turning to desert, through, you know, through starvation, through famine, through conflict, breakdown of uh, borders, you know, ref- refugees. There'll be people, there will be a few, no doubt, as there were, you know, there have been this autumn, for instance, people even fleeing to the United Kingdom, getting drowned in the channel. But lives are lost. So what do we do about these potential scenarios, which, you know, are, uh, however much we like to avoid thinking about it, are potential. We have to face up to them. And um, government has to be straight, I think, has to be more straight than it is about the um, the risks that its own policies are, and, and international policies are facing us with. So the, the Climate Change Committee, for instance, which is the government's um, uh, sort of uh, advisor on policy and practice for climate change, is saying that we really ought to be, just in case, we ought to be preparing for four degrees of warming. 
This requires a, a kind of unprecedented effort of cooperation, both to mitigate, both to keep the, the rise as low as possible and to adapt uh, to what we can't achieve. And I think, you know, I would just exhort everybody who's listening to to recognise their place and their their own historic responsibility, really. At this moment, as a citizen of the world, we can put the borders up if we want to. We can turn into Fortress Britain, keep everybody out. We will lose some places on the coast. We will lose towns in uh, low-lying floodplains. People will have to move to the high ground, et cetera, et cetera. But we will probably get by. But I, I don't want to live in that kind of world. Uh, I want to live in a world where there's international solidarity. And so we, we are our sister and our brother's keeper. We have to listen to those stories from abroad, from across the world. We have to listen to the stories of the Marshall Islands um, and demand that our government act for them as well as for us. <laughs> and of course, in a nation state, in a democracy, that's not what we're used to, but we've got to do it. It's been a few weeks now, Paul, since uh, COP26 came to an end. And of course, you're right, next year, there'll be another kind of even even more intensity around uh, COP27 mm. in Cairo. But and maybe it's too early to, to make kind of assessments now. But as you look back over what was decided at COP26, some of the, I don't know, some of the, the mood, the mood music that's come out since, are you, what's, what's your assessment? I mean... Was it better than you thought? Was it worse than you thought? Was it pretty much what you thought it would be in the end? Yeah, interesting. I suppose I'm actually slightly more positive about it than I was going to be. The mood music, well, it's very mixed, isn't it? I mean, we've got you've got 190 other nations there, some of whom, you know, any one nation, as we saw at the last minute with the, the last minute intervention from India and China about um, uh, phasing down coal, you know, whatever means rather than phasing it out any one nation can put a spanner in works and just veto uh, a consensus it pains me to say it but i think the only future for the paris process because it's based entirely on consensus it's based entirely on every country signing up to something which obviously normally just delivers a lowest common denominator i think the only potential way forward is an increasing role for uh, alliances of the willing we had something emerge called the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance with uh, Wales joining. I think Scotland might be joining. England digging its heels in still. And, you know, only maybe half a dozen, dozen other nations, but it's a start. And, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a shame to be sidestepping the recognised international process, which effectively that does. You know, it came out of the COP, but actually it wasn't a COP decision. But that's where we are. You know, if we really are going to make progress, we cannot be held up any longer by nations that need either to continue producing or want to continue producing fossil fuels, you know, exerting their producer interests on the rest of the world. We just can't do that. So my hope, I think, is in more and more alliances of the willing. And I think we did actually see you know, that the most famous and moving moments, and I feel quite moved even just to talk about it now, was to see Alok Sharma close to tears right at the end when he leapt through that amendment about not phasing out coal, but only phasing it down. And he had protests from the Marshall Islands and, you know, the small islands in developing states because it's their lives on the line. And he apologised 
and he was close to tears. And I think that said more than acres and acres of agreement and, you know, legal documentation, because he spoke for, I think, the majority, the vast majority of nations in the room in feeling that, that a line had been crossed. And that was not a line that should be crossed. And we need to recover that situation. And and actually, there was a, a clear, quite a clear mood, a will to do the right thing because of that very sobering moment. And I think we'll see more of that in the coming year. But it's important, it's absolutely vital for um, a clear message to emerge across civil society, which the church is a part of, of course, to, to focus that will, that energy, that intent, and communicate it to government and ensure that um, if the UK presidency then, in, then injects it, if you like, into the COP27 process. Well, finally, Paul, um, as you look to next year in Cairo, uh, and you, you're very aware of the, the global political process and how just how very complicated that is with so many conflicting agendas. As you peer into the future, do you think there are signs of hope? Do you think uh, we're heading in the right direction or do you fear it's too late? It's possible to believe both those things at the same time and to be right. Uh, <laughs> to have hope and to believe it's too late. I think if one if climate change has taught me anything, it's about ambiguity and the many meanings of hope uh, and the many more meanings of hope than we might have been aware of. The whole question of hope is a really um, re- required, we need to interrogate it a lot. I think as people of faith, we need to think, what is hope worth if hope actually means that as is true that hundreds of thousands of people will die because of climate related disasters because that will that's inevitable climate change will get worse if we get even if we keep to 1.5 we're at 1.1 at the moment another 0.4 degrees of warming you know we've already seen what's happening it's going to get pretty serious what right do i have to hope when people in bangladesh are increasingly going to be driven from their homes it doesn't feel that's an honorable way to understand hope. I think hope is actually very similar to courage in the context that we have. It's about maintaining a clarity about our God-given place, being here, living here in this time, in where we are, you know, in the UK, a privileged nation, knowing about our privilege, using it for the best effect where necessary, well, not just where necessary, Gosh, I mean, you know, surrendering it where necessary because, um, you know, we've we've benefited so much from from history here at other people's expense. And so hope actually consists in being aware of our responsibility and fulfilling it to the best that we can and coming out of that with a clean conscience. And our conscience is not clean, far from it. And in doing so, doing the best we can to look after those who are most vulnerable extending our sense of us, extending our sense of our own boundaries of who I am and what I deserve so that we become, we have a more universal reach. That, you know, that's the kind of humanity I think God made us for. And so if there's hope, it's in hope in becoming that kind of humanity. Whatever happens and whatever happens, who knows? Who knows what will happen? But my exhortation to hope is simply to be the people God made us to be. Well, Paul, that's a great note on which to end, so thank you so much. 
Mary Hammond, editor of the Plain Truth magazine, recently met with a couple who are running an enterprising project in Hexham in the northeast of England, reaching out with the love of God to some of society's most vulnerable citizens. I'm here with Joe and Anna Bezik, who recently took up the role of team leaders of Christian outreach project called the Eden Project. Now, this is an initiative of the Message Trust, and these Eden projects are partnered between local churches like the one in Hexham in the northeast of England, where husband and wife team Joe and Anna attend. So good morning, Joe and Anna. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. So could you tell us a little bit about how and where the project works in Hexham and who it aims to help? Yeah, so um, we're based in in Hexham in the in, in the northeast of England, and um, the Eden projects initially started through the Message Trust, and they particularly target areas that are in low, deprived unemployment areas, and where un- unemployment is, and um, there's people are really struggling with life. They're generally in these areas to support and to help them for those in need. So. Eden- Eden project we run is actually in the east end of Hexham. That's a place where we actually running the project and uh, the target we aim to help can be anyone who can be everyone who actually either we come across the needies or people who actually come and ask for help. So that's the target. So, it's, you know, it's a very wide range. Yeah. And you could imagine in these areas, these all sorts of people with, who are struggling with addiction problems, all sorts of issues, unemployment and stuff, people with mental health issues. So the, the project that you actually are going to be running is actually a house within the community where you'll be living yeah, that's correct. So actually, the, the Message Trust has just started off a load of community grocery stores. And the house that the church have got in the community, they converted the garage into a local community shop. It helps people who are really on low income, but it only doesn't help people with low income. It actually helps a lot of food wastage. Because the foods in the supermarkets that are going to end up going to landfill actually get fed to all these shops. And people can join the shop for £5 to join for a year. And they can come three times a week and spend £3 on each shop. And they take away £30 worth of groceries. So it not only helps food wastage, but it also helps those who are struggling in severe poverty. And alongside that, we converted the garage into that shop. Then we have the Eden House, where eventually me and my wife will move into. So we will be in the local community, living with the people. And next door to that, we have a coffee lounge, where on a Monday and a Friday morning, we open up that lounge and all sorts of people just come in just to sit for a chat, for fellowship, where eventually it leads to us getting them on alpha courses, and other courses that we run, like cooking courses and just things to help them in life, really, maybe helping them look for jobs, getting them on courses. But evidently, we want to preach the gospel 
that they care the good news, you know, and it, it happens. It's a perfect place in the Eden Lounge when we're sitting in a in a friendly environment, sitting over the coffee. We might have a bit of toast. We get donated cakes from Greg's, mm-hmm. um, and they send all these delicacies up, and we just sit and have a chat. And and it's we've got loads of people on Alpha courses, and since me and Anna have been there since June or July that we started up there, we've seen a, a few people saved. And we're, we're on discipling them now, sharing devotionals and stuff with these people. So God is really on the move up there at the moment. So the fact that you are a Christian organisation running from the middle of this deprived community, people are fully aware that it is a Christian organisation running this. There's not been any kind of hostilities or... Our people are actually friendly. And we don't really do Bible parties. No, you have to come to church. We actually trying to help them in various ways and they are aware of what we are doing. So it's quite natural, mutual action. Mm. So we there for helping them. They are there to engage with them. So we win system really. And I think they're thankful what we are actually doing. Yeah. And they are friendly, even though we try to share the faith and they are open up. Okay. So you've only been there a, a few months since, uh, since July, I think, think you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So what kind of background and experience do you, do you bring to the roles between the two of you? I'm sure you've got quite a lot of skills and talents and experience. <laughs> yeah. So we are missionaries. We've been on mission field quite a number of years. Um, prior to Eden Project, we were involved in Batal Ministry. Yeah, so we were involved in Batal Ministry. It's uh, It started in Spain in the 80s. It's a drug rehabilitation centre, Christian drug rehabilitation centre that was birthed through WEC, World Evangelist for Christ missionaries going over to Spain to reach out to university students but found when they got there that they were really only reaching out to the to the addict, to the prostitute. And it started through one man, Raul Casto, a Spanish man who gave his life to Christ. And then through him, all his friends ended up giving their lives to Christ. And then all these centres burst across all over the world. And I think they have nine centres in the UK. And that's where I actually met my wife in that centre, in, in, in Battelle. Actually, Anna came as a missionary to help and support the Battelle ministry as she was a, as a wecker. My wife was a wecker and she was in WEC. And I was actually in Battelle not because I was a worker, but actually I had addiction problems myself. So 15 years ago, I was a heroin addict, crack addict, and I'd spent probably the best part of my young teenage years and young adult years up until the age of 29 in and out of prison until eventually I met Christ in one of these Patel centres. And I just felt God, when he called me, he put a joy upon my heart to go and serve him. He told me specifically he had a job for me to do, and it wasn't to go out into the secular world and get a secular job, but he had a, a purpose for me and a job for me to do. And he, he just, I've just wanted to serve him. I've been walking with him now for 15 years. Well, so when you meet people within the community in Hexham, and I'm, I'm guessing there's obviously going to be people with addiction problems in that area, 
you're going to be able to empathize with them. You know, yeah. you've been there, done it. So, as I said, you've only been there a couple of months. Any highs or lows or particular things that have happened uh, since you've been there that you'd like to mention? People within the community coming to you and asking for help or volunteers or anything? I think what Anna can probably share some of the highs, but I, I'm going to share like a, a bit of a lot. It's not a lull, but I know God's on the move, but it's a, at the moment, the team is pre- predominantly women. And I want some men in the team, you know. So that can be a bit of a low for me, constantly just having women around. Um, it'd be good to have some blokes in the team. And our house as well at the moment is accompanied by somebody who's, she's she's vulnerable. She's a vulnerable lady. And she's in the house that me and Anna should be moving into. But we need to approach it with caution, you know. She does want to move out. It's it, the house is too big for her, but it's just getting the right house for her to move into, so me and Anna can move into there. So that's a bit of a low because we're not actually based in the community as of yet, where we think it's fundamental and, and very important that we we get in the community, um, and we live and do life up there with them rather than going in and out on an evening. So that's uh, perhaps one of the the lows. How about any any highs or anything any think that Anna would like to mention? Well, it's quite amazing to see how many people are actually wanting and desiring to help out the community. So if we look at our church, almost everyone wants to take part of the job we are actually facing. And also the community, uh, people come to us not only for what they want or what they need, but they really you know, naturally ask if there's anything they could help out. So we see you know, unity through the ministry. That's probably one of the personal beauty we are actually witnessing. And just to add to that as well, one of probably one of the eyes is that we've done a couple of Alpha courses recently and we've seen a handful of people give their lives to Christ, you know. And for the future, I mean, it's early days yet for you at the moment. You haven't moved into the community house yet, but it's going to be a long-term project for the churches supporting you in, in Hexham and one which you're looking both looking forward to and challenging for you. Yeah, most definitely. Every day is a challenge. But every day there's something new that we face and, you know, we've got God with us and we and we believe we're in the right place at the right time. OK, well, well, thank you ever so much, Joe and Anna, for your time. It sounds a really exciting and inspiring project and uh, people can read more about the background and more about the story in, in the winter issue of The Plain Truth. And finally, retired Methodist minister and former president of the Methodist Church in Ireland, Jim Ray, offers an Advent reflection on the limits of language to express awe and wonder. Some years ago, I was the mission superintendent of a Methodist mission in East Belfast. And at Christmas, we would usually give out some gifts to people, especially those in need. There was one lady and she was a single parent with two boys. She brought them up with great diligence and care. And we always gave her some money at Christmas to help her through that period. I still recall that when I would give her the money, she would stint there 
look at it, a tear would come to her eye and she'd say, I don't know what to say. I think there are times when uh, we just don't know what to say or how to express our thanks. An interesting quote that I read recently said that the Bible is often a translation of someone trying to communicate the indescribable. And when I think about that, I think of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. At the end of a chapter, chapter nine, he writes these words, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Unspeakable gift. Some translations put that words too wonderful to describe. And in the season of Advent, we are giving thanks for the person of Jesus Christ. The amazing story of the incarnation, that God became human in a baby at Bethlehem. I think it was Augustine who said, the son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. A remarkable quote about Jesus Christ. And sometimes in the familiarity of Christmas, we may discover that we don't truly step aside and appreciate who Jesus is. A friend of mine was talking to a man recently who said he was an atheist and he really didn't believe in the Bible at all. My friend was very interesting in his argument. He said, well, I would suggest this. Have you ever thought about predictable prophecy? The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the coming of Jesus in the form of a man, wrote about it. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Lord. What a wonderful promise indeed. The unspeakable gift. There are two other times in the Bible when that is mentioned in the New Testament. It's a different Greek word from the word that's used in Corinthians, but Peter uses it. He tells us that though we don't see Jesus, we don't see him. We have this inexpressible joy. A friend of mine used to say, you know, if you have joy in your heart, would you please inform your face? Inexpressible joy. It is the joy that we find when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. John Wesley spoke about the heart that was strangely warmed. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, he reminds us that what we have is more precious than gold, it's indestructible, and he said this amazing thing called conversion, the experience of Christ, the knowledge of Christ personally, is indescribable. Wesley puts it very well in one of his hymns. The depth of all redeeming love, what angel tongue can tell, oh may I to the utmost prove the gift unspeakable. Let me just briefly look at the third one. It's what I would call the unspeakable hope. Because Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he came to the Corinthians, speaks about an experience that he had. He said that he was caught up into paradise, into a third heaven. And he said he saw revelations and he had visions of the Lord. And he, it's obvious that he's talking about himself and he doesn't want to boast about it. But what he says is that he heard inexpressible things that cannot be told. Was he having a vision of the life to come, the second advent, the coming again of Christ in all his glory? In those amazing, amazing words that we think about, that were written by a man whose pseudonym was Stephen Adams, but was in fact Michael Maybrick. You'll know them when you'll hear them. And once again, the scene was changed. 
New earth there seemed to be. I saw the holy city beside the tideless sea. The light of God was on its streets. The gates were open wide. And all who would might enter. And no one was denied. No need of moon or stars by night. Or sun to shine by day. It was the new Jerusalem that would not pass away. Isn't that an amazing picture of the hope that there is for those of us who on the last day will be resurrected to meet with Christ and to be with Christ in spirit when we leave this earth until the day of resurrection. I pray that all of us who are here listening will somehow or other just be taken by these amazing three occasions in which the word indescribable is indescribable or unspeakable is used. I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it become, nor hath any man seen or heard the things that God has prepared for those that love him. Words from the Apostle Paul. Have a lovely Christmas and be caught up in the things that are, as the Bible, quote the Bible that I quoted earlier, the translations of the Bible, which is indescribable, unspeakable, but most of all, Isn't it true the Bible is often a translation of someone trying to communicate the indescribable? Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Plain Talking. Hope you enjoyed the ride and look out for the next edition in about a month's time. Plain Talking is sponsored by Plain Truth magazine. If you'd like to find out more about Plain Truth and indeed get a free copy, please visit plain-truth.org.uk. Again, thanks for joining us and God bless you until next time.